You're right! And this is Wednesday edition, Discussion tr discussion to Truth coming at you. Winwood1.com, uh, Discussion to Ian Trottier is my name. I am the host. Every Wednesday, I bring to you just that, a sought-out-to-destroy-corruption uh, weed out the truth, a discussion of truth. Yes, coronavirus is running rampant globally. What is happening to your rights as it be? What is going on in a global lockdown? Things to look at. Okay, uh, before we move further, this is a triple header today. We've got three hours of discussions of truth. The initial who I'll be bringing on, who's standing by, Bill Blunden, who teaches at SFSU, that's San Francisco State. He'll be talking about cyber war and the risks that you pose to yourself by connecting online. Second, we'll be bringing in the Lindstroth Report at the 6 o'clock hour. J.P. Lindstroth, former, uh, uh, pardon me, sorry, J.P., uh, Fulbright Scholar to Brazil, Oxford PhD. And in the third hour today, we have a very special guest from Toronto, uh, Canada, and his daughter, he's a natural health, Harvard-educated MD, W. Gifford-Jones, will be joining the program with Diana, his daughter, Diana Gifford-Jones, who actually has a degree in, uh, from the uh, JF, uh, JFK uh, School of Management uh, at Harvard as well. So they'll be joining us at the 7 o'clock hour. So leading up, opening up, today's program will be William Blunden, who, uh, without much further ado, I'll be dialing in here momentarily, not to keep him waiting. Uh, please donate to the program at iantrotier.com. That's I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R.com. Stop Mass Media is another platform that the show is heard on uh, every Wednesday, 5 o'clock, uh, Freedom Reserved is a book that's coming out, published uh, by Trine Day. That'll be next month, Freedom Reserved, No More Lies. Uh, that's coming your way. And, of course, Winwood one, uh, Winwood1.com and DiscussionsOfTruth.com. So all of those uh, sites, you can, you can hear past episodes streaming live again on iTunes, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, Google Play, uh, what uh, not. So coronavirus uh, is, is running rampant now. Wear your masks, wash your hands, seek advice, take care of yourself. But before we bring on William, uh, Bill, as he's known, uh, by uh, behold, a, a pale farce, cyber war, threat, inflation, and the malware industrial complex, cube farm, and software exorcism or uh, items he'll be discussing. Before we bring him on, I want you to, to first uh, take a look at uh, uh, bit.ly, uh, that's bit.ly forward slash. Zika Miami Beach. You type that into your browser. Those are capital Z-I-K-A and capital M and B in Miami Beach. And that's going to take you to a an article that was written by your by myself and published uh, at Honey Colony um, just a few years ago in regards to the Zika scare um, that came ashore from Brazil, if you remember, 
during uh, what was it an Olympiad there in Brazil or was it a World Cup not 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 quite sure which one it was but the Zika scare was uh, kind of running rampant um, uh, in in South Florida and the CDC was anyway that's a controversy please look into that because as it turns out from my research and I don't have the credentials to back it so uh, that's just my research, an average guy, just like perhaps yourself or a gal, uh, doing research. Um, I could not find any credible, and I spoke to uh, the Lancet, I spoke to the New England Journal of Medicine, nothing uh, showed that there was a direct threat uh, regarding Zika. So how threatening is the coronavirus? Okay. Uh, uh, shifting gears now to cyber war, uh, and I'm going to be dialing in uh, Bill Blunden. So go go to Skype, Skype him in here, uh, and without too much further delay. Thanks for your listening of the program and if you haven't begun doing what i'm doing please do so if if if, if you need to um you need to basically stand up for your rights and voice your opinion because uh you're being and we're being bombarded today by ridiculous amounts of corruption Hello, this is Bill. Bill, Bill Blunden, Ian Trache here. Welcome to Discussions of Truth. Thanks for standing by. How are you today, Bill? I'm sorry, I can't. I can't hear you. You can't hear me. Another issue with Skype on my Hello? end. Uh, okay, we're gonna dial Bill in. We're gonna dial Bill in here on the landline. Here we go. Dialing Bill in on landline. That's the same issue. Hello, this is Bill. Bill, it's Ian Trottier. Welcome to Discussion to Truth. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. All right. So for some reason, uh, I've had issues with the Skype the past couple weeks. Uh, so I'm just dialing you in from phone. Uh, Bill, for listeners, uh, you know, and, and let me just jump to this uh Real quickly, this is this is tremendous, and 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 if you're not familiar with the work that Bill does, I'm going to lay out a quick synopsis. Recent events, and this is from you, Bill. Recent events have brought mass surveillance back into the spotlight, and though whistleblowers have sacrificed dearly to broaden public awareness, the struggle for freedom endures as powerful interest leverage technology and clever propaganda on behalf of enhancing control. Whether it's Communist Party leaders in China or bureaucrats from the United States Department of Justice, they all present arguments in support of increasing their authority to collect data, i.e. Facebook, uh, you know, whatever it is, Google. The, this growing appetite for information has created an entire industry which subverts individual privacy for profit. Even worse, those who seek to escape the panopticon, which is a great word you use there, Bill, often yeah. fall prey to quick fixes that ultimately 
betray them. That is you and me and the rest of everybody being suckered in to giving all this information online. So here's the caveat emptor. There are no simple answers, only hard questions as the existing world order crumbles. And this is a great line, Bill. And a new one emerges. And we're in the thick of it right now with the coronavirus. So, Bill, please, for those not familiar with your work, introduce yourself and welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Um, I have a background as a security analyst. Um, I started my career, oddly enough, as a bonded private investigator uh, and did different work with security. I've worked with R&D departments. I've uh, worked on networking um, software and uh, devices, and uh, I've taken detours through academia. Um, and my work is basically at the intersection of uh, foreign policy, clandestine operations, technology, and basically power and how it's exercised. Well, that's that's incredible. Uh, Bill, what's going on in your view in the dark corners of the web? You, let's just kind of cut to the chase as we go into other avenues and dissect what is happening, and you send this perfectly, in this panopticon. So in a quick Google search on my end of a panopticon, and, and I had hosted a guy named Servando Gonzalez, who happens to be a Cuban-born American historian, and he says the communist regime under Castro uh, is was really a testing ground for what is what is this horse and engine that is trying to instill that system in the United States? And he uses a very simple, he says, uh, example, he says, he says, look, Ian, political correctedness is what was totally censored in Cuba leading up to this communist push. And this is the same type of tactic that's being used in the U.S. today. So anyway, a panopticon, if, if if a Google search yielded a prison, a Cuban prison, where essentially a ring of cells, maybe stacked 10 high, uh, and a center surveillance booth uh, located right in the center. So there is zero privacy on any of the prisoners or people occupying that cell. And there are all eyes on them on a 360 type platform 24-7. That would be a panopticon for uh, listeners listening, listening in. But what I like here, Bill, and I want you to expand on this, and that's why I pose what's going on in the deep corners of the web in your, in your mind. It, there, there is an existing world order, and I know you've written a little bit about post-9-11 U.S. and how our rights have been altered in that regard. And you can address that and speak to that if you if you choose. But ex there is an existing world order that has changed dramatically, and there is a new one emerging. What is that new order in your view, and how is the Internet being used to obtain that? Well, I think that you know, if you if you read something, uh, there was a British uh, officer who ended up writing. His name was Sir John Grubb, and he wrote a paper that you can see on the internet if you want to, called "The Fate of Empires." Empires all crumble, whether it's the the Chinese dynasties or the Soviet Union or the Third Reich. These empires all come to an end. The British Empire too came to an end basically 
at World War One, World War Two. That was the end of the British Empire, and they, they, there's always this transition, transitioning. Um, and so uh, now we're in a position, you know, with the coronavirus, even that's kind of challenging the whole notion of globalization. But if you wanted to look at kind of where the where the where the kind of horizon is for this, I think China is actually a pretty good example. Uh, Silicon Valley likes to likes to depict tool of liberation. But if you take a close look at China, you'll see that it's actually just as effective as a tool of control. Technology can be used to indoctrinate people. Technology can be used to monitor people or to imprison them. And, and you know, this is a Cold War narrative, the idea that over time China would become more economically successful. And, and with that, democracy would arrive with it. So if people get more money, things become more democratic, and it proved that that narrative was just a pleasant fiction. China has evolved into a full-bore police state. They have a leader for life, Xi Jinping. Uh, they have these pervasive censorship factories. They, they have re-education camps, something that we, we thought we'd never see again. Uh, and, for example, in the, in, the Xinjiang, in the Xinjiang province in China, um, they have basically they, – they've taken that whole region and made it into an open-air uh, prison. The entire population of the region has been DNA swabbed. It's in like 24 million people. Every car has a GPS sensor in it. Oh, my gosh. Every phone has a government-mandated application on it to make sure that you don't install anything that shouldn't be there, like a privacy app. And there's even something called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is this massive database that they maintain, which has records on everyone and their activity. And some of the information about that uh, platform leaked online. And, uh, for example, if, if, you, if you stopped using your smartphone and you, and you just stopped using it completely and turned it off, that would actually show up as a record in this database. And it, it would become – that would be an indicator that something's happened and you need to be targeted for observation. Why has this person suddenly stopped using their phone? So uh, w one of the kind of underlying themes of that is if, if you're going to escape surveillance, you have to maintain this kind of uh, generic baseline. So it seems like there's nothing unusual. You'll always stay within your baseline. So th this, this panopticon that China is developing in the Xinjiang region, region is spreading to other cities in, in China. And, and ultimately, this, uh, this methodology is going to be a blueprint for other police states like Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Uzbekistan. Um, and the, the leaders of China are intensely insecure. That's kind of a defining characteristic. They've got this huge landmass that they're in charge of. Uh, they've got over a billion people that, that they have to govern and control. Uh, and so they're really particularly sensitive to economic volatility. Uh, and I'm sure the coronavirus outbreak is totally tweaked them pretty good because they un they understand that with economic volatility comes social unrest so and year after yeah. year yeah go ahead bill year after year that the chinese government has promised six percent growth uh, but you have to understand this is a government which censors bad news um pretty pretty uh, pretty much across the board and there have been other warning signs that this is this is that this is also these are all just, just lies just flat out lies for example, they have this, this huge towering mountain of debt that they've been building, something like 3,000%, I'm sorry, 300% of their GDP. And they have this conspicuous industrial overcapacity that they've established. And they have these ghost cities. Like there's a, this one called Lanxiao, which is just 
building after building of empty apartments to the point where something like 20% of urban apartments in China are empty because they have all this surplus capacity. And so there's this unspoken agreement in China that, that the government has with its population. That is, average person stays out of politics and minds their own business, and the government will ensure economic growth. So you, you stay out of politics and you mind your own business and you can do well. You can, you know, maybe, you can, maybe you can work your way up into the middle class. But eventually, this is, this is, the chickens that I just mentioned are going to come home to roost. And this is eventually going to come falling down. And th- let me just say there's a reason why the elites in China have been buying apartments in Manhattan and in London, because they realize that this game's not going to go on forever. You know, there's no such thing as infinite growth on a finite planet. You can't do 6% growth year after year, year, year after year after year. It just doesn't happen. And so they realize, I think they realize that, and they're preparing for, for it to eventually come crashing down. So you look at, for instance, the adoption of the Chinese uh, with communism. Communism is not something that they... Uh, started. It's something that they learned, right? If communism really roots to Germany and uh, uh, Marx. Uh, yes. And and so have they fallen victim to a European style of governance and therefore being pigeonholed into a working and uh, into this um, global economy? Uh, does that make sense to you? And yeah, what do you I, think of that? I, they tr- they try to rebrand their their ideology as socialism with Chinese characteristics, um, and the the real breakthrough happened uh, when when Mao Zedong gave way to Deng Xiaoping, and he decided to let some people get wealthy before others. In other words, let's introduce elements of of capitalism uh, in the into the economy. So they had these state owned enterprises. Um, and so you have this, these, these basically another set of elites that emerged through that. And, and they kind of came in. And if you look at the power structure of China, the Communist Party still is pretty much the dominant institution. They're very sensitive about that. They don't like any other group organization to challenge, to challenge their, um, their control and their management, uh, which is why they, 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 uh, they don't like to have religious freedom uh, and any other any other institution that might challenge them, they they, they will go after. Uh, and so, um, over time, some of the uh, business elites have joined the Communist Party, which makes sense. They go where the power is going to be, wherever the policy is going to be set. Um, but ultimately, it's it's this party that's the core of their power structure. The the elite structure in other con- countries is kind of different. The one we have in this country is definitely different, but it has its own kind of unique uh, facets. But the one in China, it's really all still comes down to the Communist Party. They're never going to give up control. And so everything they they do is geared towards maintaining the status quo, maintaining their 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 hold on authority. And so if you look at that, uh, President Xi, that's exactly what he's doing. He he wants to make sure there's no challenges. And so he wants to he wants to tell other bureaucrats, you can't outlast me. You can't wait me out. I'm going to be here forever. I'm going to be here until I die for the next several decades. You're going to have to deal with me, so you might as well get with the program. Uh, Bill, are you familiar with the former Stanford Hoover fellow by the name of Anthony Sutton? Yes, I'm familiar. I have read his uh, book on Skull and Bones. 
Now, what do you think in regards to the internet? Not that it ties in to Sutton's research and work, but certainly what Sutton exposes is that the U.S. financially was supporting uh, Russia. Uh, they were sending Russia uh, technologies to build up the Russian military, that's the Soviet Union, um, and also doing that prior with Germany. So uh, not only funding Nazi Germany, and this would tie to Prescott Bush and, like you mentioned, Yale and Skull and Bone Society, but also funding, of course, the counterattack, which would have been the Western alliance of uh, U.S., France, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the U.K. primarily. So therefore creating this kind of uh, uh, almost an oxymoron from an outsider's point of view, but a Hegelian dialectic, um, Comments on that before we proceed. You could see that um, during the last 30, 20 or 30 years or so, um, there has been a slow undermining of the white collar and working, working classes here in the United States by executives who sent our economy over to China, a good chunk of it, right? I, I think uh, there, there's been the observation that we took our middle class, the middle class in the United States moved to China, right? So they, they were able to move all these people and their own populations because businesses moved their manufacturing and uh, other work offshore, in, in particular into China. Motor at one point had no research and development within the United States. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can see how you could make that argument, that we built China up by allowing it to subsume a, a, a large chunk of, of our industries, uh, that a lot of uh, – it represents a huge market. It represents resources that we can access, and business executives just told us they didn't have a choice. We have to send this work offshore, and it, it's, it's still going on. So um, yeah, we, we've we've definitely strengthened that those those uh, those decisions, those kind of unenlightened short-term decisions that executives made, really undermined us as a country and strengthened China. Now your expertise obviously is in uh, well the, the the internet and cyber war uh, and the information superhighway uh, in that regard. So applying that and the panopticon. I think the average American certainly thinks uh, that the internet, and you may correct me if you know otherwise, the internet is an American-born technology. But my understanding is that uh, it's not so much American. It's it's Tim uh, uh, Berners-Lee invented the WWW protocol in the early 80s uh, in uh, in Switzerland, if I'm correct. So, how American really is the internet? Well, I'd say the internet has its genesis uh, in DARPAnet, which was a product of the Pentagon. The idea being that we need a, net, a network that was capable of surviving a nuclear first strike. In other words, you could take out vast portions of the of the structure. You could blast out routers. Uh, and you'd still be able to get a message from point A to point B. And out of that DARPAnet is really what became the Internet uh, as, as people gradually started to use it and, and adopt it. Uh, and in fact, you know, you could, you could say, you know, this was a military project, like right. DARPA, right? Um, and so in, in a sense, if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, 
Silicon Valley is in many ways the descendant of, of this military project. Yeah. And so these, these, these tech companies are kind of like the, the children of, of, uh, of a vast defense industry project. Uh, and so a lot of when you when you see that historical context, a lot of things start to make sense. Um, for example, I mean the elites. I talked about the elites in China um, being concerned about the status quo. I, I think that the elites in the United States are also likewise concerned intensely on the status quo because it's doing pretty well for them. You know, in the past several decades, I think four decades. Uh, the, the amount of the share of income for the top 1% has gone from 10% to 20% of, of the income. And if you, just last, in the last year, if you look at the wealthiest 500 people on the planet, their, their, their assets increased by 25%. Right. So the status quo is, is, is doing just fine for them, and they want to maintain that. The primary tool which they use to – I mean their basic tool is to control the narrative, and that, they do that through the media. Through, through media ownership. If you look at, at these media outlets, there are so many billionaire-owned media outlets right on the landscape of, of the corporate kind of agenda-setting outlets. There, there is a heavy kind of uh, faction of billionaires who kind of hold sway. And, and through using the media, they control what's known as the Overton window. And the Overton window is basically uh, the, the terms of acceptable debate in, 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 in public. What the, the outlets decide, this is going to be on the table. This is something we can talk about. Um, the, the best description of this that I've seen is probably the, uh, by, described by a book called Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Michael Herman. Uh, and, and this describes how they use uh, the media to, to manipulate the Overton window. But not everyone is gonna is gonna drink the Kool-Aid. Some people actually stop listening and they get off the couch and they start they start doing stuff. Um, and it's that's when the surveillance comes into play, because you know if it's you know for the most part, then controlling the narrative does a, a pretty good job of keeping a lid on things. But they're, they're little cracks and things get through, and that's when they they start using the surveillance and. Edward Snowden, in an open letter to yeah. Brazil, he said that these programs had nothing, you know, the, the, the genesis of these programs are really not related to terrorism. They have more to do with economic espionage, diplomatic manipulation, and social control. These programs are about power. Yeah, well, For example, so. yeah. There, there's, a, there's a database. The government insiders have indicated there's a database that the government manages called Main Corps. And in main core, they keep records on people who are considered to be threats to national security. And this data is collected by the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, all these intelligence committee members are funneling data into main core. Uh, the, the last tally that I heard was back in 2008 by Radar Magazine. They reported there's something like 8 million. There's records on 8 million people in, in main core. Obviously, since then, in, in the decade or so since that, report, I'm sure that number has only dramatically increased. As, as the technology to store that data gets a lot cheaper and surveillance technology itself gets cheaper, it's just, I'm sure that database is quite full uh, and, and still very actively used. We know that the telephone line, the first uh, continental uh, transmission was, I think, from Jekyll Island up to New York over to San Francisco. It, we also know, coincidentally enough, that at that same Georgia uh, uh, island neighborhood is where uh, the basically the Federal Reserve seems to have been uh, formulated 
uh, unofficially. Uh, is there a link between the two? We don't know, but we do know that the Federal Reserve seems to be the base financial uh, foundation that operates the day-to-day -day, uh, livelihood thereof of the government of the United States. So we tie that into the Internet. In, in your view, Bill, and your research, uh, what's the most alarming thing? You bring up uh, Snowden. What's the most alarming thing that's happened in a post-9-11 America? I have to say that the, the things that um, kind of disturb me, I mean, we get, we get sales, sales pitches about uh, security tools, you know, the these quick fixes that I, that you talked about. There's programs like WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal, and you say, just use these and you'll be okay. But the truth is, and this is something that I learned by researching Snowden's document, going, wading through the Snowden documents one at a time, it's, the, the question isn't, is this technology secure? You're asking the wrong question. The right question is, which set of intelligence services has access? And while these silicon, while these technical companies, technology companies in Silicon Valley, and the execs pay a lot of lip service to your security, when push comes to shove, and, the, and this is this is a matter of public record, when push comes to shove, they make secret deals. Whether it's Crypto AG, the, the CIA secretly owned Crypto AG, a, a company which sold cryptographic technology to over 120 different countries. During the Cold War, people thought that their transmissions were secure. It turns out the CIA owned that company secretly. And the two nations that weren't using the technology were Russia and China because they didn't trust it. And, and history shows that they had good reason not to trust it. So more, more recently, the Snowden era programs, there were all there's like a litany of code words, programs like PRISM or Bull Run, where they weakened cryptographic equipment that RSA made a backroom deal with the NSA, or the Signal Intelligence Enabling Program, where companies across you know a wide swath of companies made their technology quote unquote exploitable so that it could be accessed. And so there were all these secret deals. And obviously it goes without saying that Silicon Valley does not want to talk about this. Because above all, they've got to keep selling stuff. They got to keep selling you smartphones. They got to keep selling you apps. They got to keep selling because the minute they say, "Well, we did make this backroom deal," people are going to stop buying their stuff. So I would say, you know, if you were, it, the thing that's so shocking to me is how pervasive it is and how kind of oblivious the average person is to it. Um, you know, if you're a political, if you're a high-profile political figure. I would recommend that you avoid the internet for sensitive communication. Yeah, yeah. I, I would recommend you go out of band. You, you, you. If you, if, if you have to assume without without you know there are spies from multiple nations, including ours. If you're a high-profile political figure, there's spies all over the place that are targeting you. You're a big juicy bullseye, right? It goes. I mean. We, we have our own history of, of uh, United States NSA spying on uh, politicians like Angela Merkel, right? So if, if, you were, if you wanted to avoid that, what I would do is you'd have to force spies into an environment where they're big budgets, they're billion-dollar budgets, and their massive tool suites don't make much difference. And that means focusing on autonomy, 
going out of band, not using the infrastructure that's there because that, again, is something they're going to subvert and infiltrate and use against you. Uh, and so in, in many cases, that just means going off the grid and making it so expensive for them to spy on you that they, they, uh, they choose not to. Bill, is the Internet itself a catch-22? Is it a panopticon entirely? Whereas, is I mean, for someone who's paranoid and simply uh, just doesn't want <laughs> their information to be shared, of course, then they would, like you say, go off-grid. But is, uh, and of course it becomes persuasive because it's so easy to connect with people wherever they are globally. Uh, is there any safe way in that regard to use the internet? Doesn't sound like it. Yeah, so Snowden in particular um, was very adamant. He said strong encryption works and it's one of the few things you can rely on. However, there's some fine print to that statement that I, that I think that the people in general weren't aware of. And that is that there are few guarantees of security out on the internet. The NSA had uh, an internal document that eventually made its way out in the public. You can view it online. It's called the inevitability of failure. And essentially what this document says is that it doesn't matter how strong your encryption is. Yeah. If someone can hack your phone and make off with the information before it's encrypted or while you're viewing it or when it's decrypted somehow. Uh, so it doesn't matter how strong your crypto is, hacking beats crypto. And there's plenty of examples about this. For example, in October 2019, the Department of Justice announced that it had taken down a darknet portal uh, and that the people were using it were leveraging technology like Tor or Bitcoin, uh, which is both, both of these are cryptographically based technologies, which are there to kind of uh, to protect privacy. Uh, and it turns out that that didn't really help that much. They ended up charging hundreds of people. There were some like over 300 arrests as a result of that operation. That's just one of dozens of operations. And you have to understand these were people, you know, these, these, these 300 plus people who were charged and arrested, these are people who thought that the technology was going to protect them. them. And I think the, the, the ultimate expression of this, of this reality that hacking beats crypto or whatever the executives are going to try to sell to you it's probably the Vault 7 leaks um, from WikiLeaks uh, that came out in 2017, uh, revealing an organization in, within the CIA called the Center for Cyber Intelligence. And it, it showed that the, the CIA is, has essentially its own version of the NSA. It has hundreds of engineers developing malware in-house, um, thousands of, of different modules, uh, with code names like Brutal Kangaroo and Weeping Angel. And the, 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 the bottom line of once you, when you look at this from, from, from afar, you realize that if they want to get on your phone, they can get on your phone. They have zero to exploits. They have stuff which, is, which, which, which the vendors don't even know about and they can leverage. Um, there, there's a whole, a whole industry related to this. So, you know, th that type of thing, it's, it's just kind of a... Uh, buyer beware. You understand the tech is going to sell you, to tell you crypto is going to protect you and they're going to sell you apps. But the truth is that if they want to get to you, they're going to get to you. And you that, that phone you're carrying is nothing more than a glorified telescreen. Yeah, and Bill, let's take this, the the profiteering that's going on in Silicon Valley. Uh, the information that you're 
giving to listeners here is, is very valuable. And does a guy like a Mark Schmidt, although I don't know what he's doing these days, or a, a, a Tim Cook, even even let's go back to a Steve Jobs. Of course, we're looking at mainstays and basically uh, very heavy hitters in in the the, the overall industry. Uh, but do people like that who uh, obtain high levels or have created a technology? Did do they understand what they're feeding into? I don't see how they can't. But you know, what you have to understand that the, the, the elites in our country—they are primarily business business executives—and they have these. They're driven by these short-term incentives, and this leads them to ignore negative externalities. Um, and they're all about pushing product out the door. They, that's because that's what they're supposed yeah. to do. They're supposed to look at their quarterly numbers, and I got to make those numbers for the investors, right? So, and for the company, my fiduciary duty is to profit. So, um, when you have that kind of situation, I think they kind of know what they're doing, but they realize what's happening. But their their system and their companies are driven by different concerns. Um, I, I think that you know. People have a vague sense that they're being spied on, thanks to Ed Snowden. But most people, like I said, they don't, haven't read through the documents. They don't have time, and it's understandable. I mean, people have to make a living. You can't spend all yeah. the time reading through documents. Leave that to people like me, right? So uh, they have this vague sense they're being spied on. But in terms of concrete institutional change, not that much has actually been done. I mean, we had the USA Freedom Act of 2015. Which, which basically took call record data, which was being collected by the NSA, and merely allowed the telecom providers to hold on to it. And then the, 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 in, the NSA would ask for it, or the Department of Justice would ask for it through, through a court order of some sort, uh, which basically just adds another bureaucratic hoop. And in, in other words, this, was, this, this, this alleged uh, reform was so watered down that a former NSA director, Michael Hayden, responded to it. He openly mocked it. And he said, I quote, this is it after two years. Cool. <laughs> I just, you know, that, that that's where we're at. And I, I think that, you know, there was an internal NSA document that came out in Der Spiegel. And in this document, the NSA, the person writing this document referred to iPhone users as zombies who pay for their own surveillance. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'd have to agree because yeah. while we're presumably more aware of mass surveillance, that thanks to the sacrifice of people like Ed Snowden, uh, people just keep snapping up smartphones. They keep feeding their addiction to social media, and they just keep offering up data. And it's it's odd because if you force people to wear a tracking device, let's say everyone in the United States suddenly had to wear one of those ankle bracelets with the with the with the with the wireless tracking on it. I think there'd be a revolt pretty quickly. <laughs> It'd probably end by lunchtime, right? It'd be pretty fierce. But if you take that tracking device off the ankle and you morph it into a mobile device that you can stick in your pocket and you add all these conveniences right. like email and social media apps and ride sharing and food delivery services, suddenly people start opting into surveillance. And I would say this was a brilliant move by the establishment to get people to trade for convenience yeah very well and very well said yeah. yeah very well said bill um okay so let's let's move in to the to the final moments uh we could easily carry on for another hour uh with you bill um last week 
Uh, last week, Kevin Shipp, who was with the CIA for 17 years, uh, joined the program, and, and he, <laughs> he said right here live with us, he says, uh, this country needs a revolt. Um, and unfortunately, I think that it's simply too deep into this, like you're saying, this brilliantly connived and engineered system that has taken likely decades uh, to inscript and instill. Um, given that that's what's going on um, and that whether it's media through television or media through internet, uh, you're kind of enclosed in this panopticon either way. Um, enter um, uh, the, the early stages of 2020 and now we've got this coronavirus virus. So that you know, uh, Bill, I began this show in Wynwood, after uh, after a friend of mine had gotten me engaged into the local Zika debate, uh, you probably remember that. Um, yeah. And uh, it turns out that the pesticide, from my research, was far more uh, 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 toxic to the health than this fairly benign Zika virus. And I used that word because I had spoken to experts in the field at New England Journal of Medicine and also at Lancet. Um, so uh, here we go four years later and we've got yet another, and now this is on a much larger scale pandemic. How do you see uh, this uh, uh, developing in regards to this new world order and if you hold that thought Bill can you and would you uh, tie it into is this an American driven new world order is it something much deeper than that uh, paralleling these uh, uh, non-physical borders like uh, Bitcoin well I think you have to look at the nature of the American power structure it's not necessarily American I mean, in, in terms of its nature, um, like I said, it's, it's essentially, you know, the, the, our political system responds heavily in terms of its actual policy to organized business groups. Um, and these business groups don't necessarily have a, na a national identity. They have their own priorities and their own sort of necessities. They have to keep making money. And I think that's that's part of a problem. The, the status quo, I think, will, will ultimately be overwhelmed by external and internal factors. But the external factors, you, you have these systems which are based on the need for infinite growth. And like I, you know, eventually that prerogative for growth is going to run into the laws of physics. Uh, and when that happens, there's going to be some pretty fierce competition. If you look at the history of the planet since, we say, the Renaissance, it's been can define primarily in terms of nation states competing for resources. And so I think that when, when the music stops, there's going to be a whole lot of regional conflict and potentially drawing in some world powers into global conflict. And as a result of, of you know, this, this war is the recurring theme of history. Uh, as a result of this conflict, there's going to be famine, there's going to be disease, and there's going to be mass migration on a scale that we've never, that we've never seen before. Um, at least not in this century. Um, and I, I think that as that's happening, the elites inside the United States are going to be trying to keep a lid on stuff. Um, there's, there's obviously money is going to keep playing a more kind of dominating role in our political system. 
and there's going to be technological changes like automation and artificial intelligence, which will also right. potentially destabilize things. And it, it will get to a point where that the center can't hold, and you end up with things kind of falling apart. And like I said, the old world order is crumbling, and I think that in, in there's a possibility in the next 50 years or so we will see economic, um, political, and social collapse um, all over all over the earth. Um, and I'm not an optimist. Um, unfor- you know, pe- sure. people would hope people would hope things wouldn't go there. But yeah. the truth is that in a lot of cases, hope is just a form of lightweight denial. And there are times where it's actually more productive to take a sober look at things. Um, you know, the, these weapons of mass destruction are proliferating, whether we like it or not. Um, and the world is getting bigger, and there's more demands being put on it. And, you know, by the end of the century, uh, there will be whole swaths of the planet around the equator which aren't habitable anymore. Now, India's got a billion people. Where are they going to go? Um, so these are kind of things to think about. Uh, I think that, you know, like I said, unfortunately I'm not an optimist, but uh, surveillance will basically be used as a tool to try to maintain the status quo as long as possible. Well said, Bill. Very well said. Uh, we've got to wind down our time. Uh, thank you for joining the program. Bill, uh, some final thoughts for listeners. I'd, I'd say that, you know, the, the, the whole idea of going dark. Um, you've heard this narrative recently from the Attorney General William Barr um, and a lot of other complaints about wanting backdoors and everything. And the, the, something I want to leave you guys with is the, the, the reality and the truth is that the backdoors are already there. There's buggy software everywhere and there, there's a whole industry that leverages those bugs. So the Department of Justice isn't going dark anytime soon. Um, and it, you know, I can I can uh, I can identify with them, and the the feeling that they're being kind of besieged by this technology that they can't access. But at the same time, we 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 uh, we, while we while we need them to work to enforce the law, we shouldn't give up our rights and our liberties in in the in the in the uh, process of that. So I think we really need to, in some cases, put freedom um, above security. I think Benjamin Franklin put it best: those who would yield essential liberty on behalf of temporary security deserve neither security nor liberty incredible thank you bill thank you for joining the program uh your book uh rootkit arsenal behold the pale fars uh, both uh, found on amazon are both at barnes and noble i pretty I, i'm pretty sure you could order them if they're not if they're not in the store great absolutely and 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 a uh, a website for you bill belowgotham.com Bill, thanks for joining. Looking forward to inviting you back on the program. Thanks again. Any Anytime, Ian. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Blunden. That's William Alva Blunden, Cornell-educated, San Francisco State University-based lecturer and author. Again, his two books, The Rootkit Arsenal, Escape and Invasion in the Dark Corners of the System, Behold a Pale Farce, Cyber War, Threat Inflation, and the Malware Industrial Complex, Cube Farm, and software exorcism. Uh, a little quote here before I go. This is uh, regarding uh, 
uh, Behold a Pale Farce. This book presents a data-driven message that exposes the cyber war media campaign being directed by the Pentagon and its patronage net networks. By demonstrating that the American public is being coerced by a threat that has been blown out of proportion. Sound a little bit like the coronavirus to you? Hmm. Much like the run-up to the Gulf War or the global war on terror. This book discusses how the notion of cyber war instills a crisis mentality that discourages formal risk assessment, making the public anxious and hence susceptible to ill-conceived solutions with content that challenges conventional notions regarding cybersecurity. Behold a Pale Farce covers topics including cybercrime, modern espionage, met espionage, mass surveillance systems, and the threats facing infrastructure targets such as the Federal Reserve, the Stock Exchange, and the telecommunications in a way that provides objective analysis rather than advocacy. This book is a must-read for anyone concerned with the recent emergence of Orwellian tools of mass interception that have developed under the guise of national security. It's unfolding before our eyes, folks. I hope this discussion of truth has resonated with you. Stand up and do something about it, if you will. You must. I'll be back for another hour of discussion of truth. Again, today is a triple header. We're following Bill Blunden up with the Lindstrath Report. J.P. Lindstrath will be joining us. And then we'll be joining the third hour by W. Gifford Jones, a natural health M.D., that will likely address his opinion on how to protect yourself from the coronavirus. So I'll be right back with another edition of Discussion of Truth. This is Ian Hamilton Trottier. You can pre-order Freedom Reserve right now. No more lies. Get it on Barnes & Noble, I think, in 19 bucks. Donate to the program today at winwood1.com. Miami Radio. I'll be back in a few moments. And until then, folks, simply be awesome. <laughs>